Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Healings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. Many of you right now are listening to us on iTunes, and if you are, thank you. You're a trusted and highly regarded segment of our audience. What would really help us out is if you could take the extra moment and write a review right on iTunes to let others know how much value you derive from the podcast. If you would, it takes just a moment and you'd be sharing that value with people who I know would appreciate it. So again, please write a review. Now, our guest today is Mandy Tice. Mandy is a figurative painter and art educator and graduate of the Aristides Atelier. She is the president and co-founder of the Da Vinci Initiative, a foundation that supports skills-based learning in K-12 art classrooms. Da Vinci provides atelier training and resources to art teachers through online classes, workshops, and conferences, and keynote speaker services. Mandy is an advocate for visual literacy and realism in the contemporary art market. Welcome to the show, Mandy. Thank you for having me. Well, it's really exciting, and I, I have a question for you. So, uh, as you might expect in a talk show, <laughs> why the Da Vinci Institute? Why not the Edvard Munch Institute or the Klimt Foundation? Why Da Vinci? Ah, well, you know, one thing that we're really interested in in education is making sure that art isn't treated separately or as an other in the curriculum. So Da Vinci, he was very well known for not just his artistry, but his science, uh, his innovation, his creativity. And we felt that that was the best way to express how drawing can help all aspects of learning in the classroom. I think there's a, a also a show out on cable, Da Vinci's Demons. So, you know, it makes him really popular these days. Uh, you know, there's no Klimt's Demons or Munch's Demons. You know, it's, it's Da Vinci. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, Da Vinci is a very well-known name as well, and it's it's clear when we're talking about Da Vinci that we're talking about skill-based drawing, whereas uh, maybe other artists that we could have chosen are lesser known to the average audience member. Uh, that's a good point. So now let me ask you to clarify a bit of terminology then, just so we can all get on the same page. Now, I think of an atelier as sort of a, a place where artists go um, and learn in sort of an apprenticeship or a mentor-mentee relationship where... Uh, they paint for a while and, you know, pick up skills, et cetera. But what exactly then is atelier training? Sure. Uh, so what I tell people is that atelier training is pretty much the way artists were trained up until about 100 years ago. Um, the idea being that there's inherited artistic information that had been handed down for generation after generation from one artist to another artist. And what a lot of people don't realize is that there's actually scientific discoveries in art, just like there are in every other field. So, for example, one artist might have a way of thinking about the edges of something and, and softening edges. That was a scientific discovery. Or this concept of linear perspective is a scientific discovery in art. And what atelier training really is, is the collective body of knowledge of generations of artists. So when I'm talking about atelier training, I'm talking about people that have this inherited collective information and are sharing it uh, with others. Well, that's interesting. It's sort of like uh, the concept of oral tradition. You know, there's a, 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 a movement within music that suggests that you can't just sort of pop up on the stage and, and imitate uh, a group of favorites off of a record album, but you have to be part of sort of a continuity where the skills are passed on from one artist to another, that you you get it organically by working with enough artists in the community. Um, and, and if that's true in, you know, sound, in, in music, I can't imagine that it's not true in mm -hmm. the visual arts. And you referred to 
um, the way it used to be done, you know, that, that that was a core element. So we're talking about sort of the power of tradition and the power of passing on skills from person to person and sort of, instead of sort of, you know, learning them from a, a book or a computer program. What do you... Yeah, hmm, I mean, ahead. sure. Uh, it doesn't really make sense to uh, have people reinvent a wheel, right? So I was mostly a self-taught um you know, artists until I discovered the atelier training. And there were things that I genuinely thought I had discovered about how to draw. And when I went to the atelier, I realized I could learn them in a day, in a week, right? What took me maybe 10 years to come into discovering, uh, working independently. So it just doesn't make any sense. We can't really move art forward if we don't understand what's already known about visual literacy. Hmm. It, it reminds me, you know, coming up, my father was an engineer and I went to school on the, at the beginning when the, you know, the personal computer was invented. And I was coming from a place of, you know, having all this classified technology at home and, and so on. And, and so getting kind of an inside look at technology before the average person saw it. And then I remember... <laughs> Uh, there's this thing called uh, ASCII, ASCII code. And uh, I was talking about it with a group of people at school and somebody said, it's not ASCII code, it's ASCII. And I said, do you think a group of engineers shout that across the room every time they want to say, do you have the ASCII code for this? <laughs> they don't. In real life, they say, do you have the ASCII code? And, and we move on. So they had learned from a book. I had learned from my father and it was a different... Uh, a different relationship sure. with the knowledge, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, you know, efficiency of sharing information matters too. And essentially what you're doing is taking a lot of syllables and compressing them to two, right? So you are now able to share that information more efficiently. And that's what the atelier system does. It collects information and it shares it with students that want to understand visual literacy in the most efficient way that exists right now for that technical knowledge. So earlier I was going to ask you, um, what, if anything, is missing in art education right now? And I think, of course, you're underscoring maybe the big thing, that it is this sort of person-to-person -person training of somebody who has the skill instead of somebody uh, who necessarily can teach the skill. And of course, I don't mean that that's always a valid dichotomy. Um, I'm not meaning to offend art teachers everywhere. But I... I wonder if you think that there's more to it, that there is more to be done to revitalize art education, or if it even needs to be revitalized as we see it in its current form. Well, I look at a lot of the other art forms, right? Uh, so we have classical ballet, and we have contemporary dance, and we have street dance, and, and all forms of dance, right? Uh, and when I look at music, we have classical music, and we have garage bands, and we have experimental music. When I look at art overall right now, we have a lot of uh, experimental ideas in play, but we are no longer drawing on a knowledge base, uh, in part because that knowledge base got interrupted about 100 years ago. And by the 1980s, there were really only two places left that Westerners had access to, to access this knowledge. So basically what happened is with the advent of modernism, there was this idea that training would ruin your creativity. And it was the artists themselves that purposely chose not to train the next generation. So you have people like Mondrian, who was classically trained, chose not to use that training in his own work or most of that training in his own work, but also did not share that classical knowledge forward to the next generation of students. Uh, so we had this break in historical and collective technical knowledge in the arts that we didn't see in dance or in music. And I just, I believe that more information is always useful and helpful and that 
we can truly be innovative in the visual arts when we know what's already been done so we can truly move forward. Well, you talk about um, knowledge being lost, et cetera. And, you know, I sort of, and, and then you also talk about skills-based art education. It, but isn't that a dichotomy? Isn't there a, a difference between a knowledge-based education and skills-based education, or is that not correct? Um, well, I would say maybe when we're talking about art education, that skills and knowledge maybe have more overlap because, you know, you can understand what color that you're seeing in a theoretical way, but if you're not practicing using that color and mixing that color and seeing if your theory matches your practice, then you might not have the skill yet. Okay, so uh, you have conceived of this initiative, the Da Vinci Initiative, to address this issue of skills-based education in the arts. Um, have, you, have you modeled Da Vinci on other schools? Did this come whole cloth? Did, did this come from scratch? Or did you look at various schools and that are doing it right and decide to model Da Vinci on that? Um, so the Da Vinci Initiative is really modeled more on the contemporary atelier system than any you know K-12 school in particular. It's just that there's a lot of, uh, you know, nobody loves learning more than art teachers love to learn. And yet there's been a separation between access to the skill set and how we train art educators, you know, in today's time. So what we're really trying to do is take this gap and close it and provide access to these skills uh, to art educators so that they can incorporate it into their classrooms. Okay, so it really is kind of radical. It's not coming from, you know, traditionally a lot of programs are, it's just sort of like city planners will model how to build a, a mass transit system on what has worked for other cities, et cetera. So they'll, they'll do a survey of other cities and put together sort of a, a best practice set. Instead, you're taking directly from the atelier model rather than going out to the schools and, and sort of measuring what occurs in the K through 12 level. Well, in some ways, what we're doing is we're modeling it after how art was taught about 100 years ago, right? right? So the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris was kind of the height of artistic training uh, for the West you know, a hundred years ago, and they were taking what we consider children today and training them quite seriously. You know, it wasn't unusual to have a 12 or 13 year old enrolled in the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. And, and in fact, um, something that's very common in the atelier system is the Charles Bark drawing course that Jean-Mont Jerome and Charles Bark worked on together. And it was really the first national curricula ever created. And it was nationally disseminated throughout France as a way to bring technical drawing training to students before they ever even made it to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. So in a way, we're modeling it after something that has existed and in a way to help all students, you know, access visual literacy, communicate visually, communicate accurately, communicate exactly what they intend to communicate without miscommunication because they didn't have the skills to execute their ideas exactly the way they intended them. But I'm, I'm hearing when, when one says that uh, this is something that was done a long time ago and that we're taking from outside the school system, I'm hearing a tacit, I'm hearing a tacit critique of the way arts education is currently done and perhaps therefore the the generation of artists that we've uh, we've produced through that education. So here's the question I want to ask. Do you think that young artists need to improve upon the current generation? And if so, how does skills-based learning and the atelier model in particular 
how does it hold promise for, for that improvement? Well, I think it's true in all subjects that we always want to be moving forward and, and to learn more and to grow in our knowledge base, whether we're talking about art or science or math or, or any topic. And what's really interesting about the current atelier state of things is that because this training fell out of favor, it's very, very difficult for most arts educators to access it. And so by increasing the access, we're increasing the ability to teach very important skills about how the eye actually sees information, interprets information. And, you know, this isn't just important for artists. There's no profession in the world that wouldn't benefit from having a more nuanced understanding of how to see. And that's really what the training does. It's not really about what your hand is doing. It's about helping your eyes see in a more nuanced way. For example, do you know that someone that can see more colors than you can teach you to see colors that you've never seen before? Like, that's amazing, right? And what about all these biologists looking at petri dishes? Wouldn't it help them if they saw a very subtle change in color that their eye may not have otherwise been trained to see? You know, how would that benefit all of humanity? It's not just the arts that benefit from visual literacy. Every profession can benefit by understanding what it is our eyes are seeing and being able to identify the information in a more deliberate and nuanced way. Okay, so as we shift into the second segment of the show, which is a little bit about you know the culture overall and and realist art, uh, I want to ask you this question uh, because this goes it, it's almost the same concept but turned toward the market rather than the way in which we learn and toward artists themselves. So, what's it like to be supporting? a realist aesthetic and an arguably post-realist, never going to be realist again, to heck with realism, cultural climate? Um, Well, it's interesting, right? You know, everybody has their own incentive. My incentive is that I want children to be able to create whatever artwork is in their heads and their hearts without compromise, right? And, you know, I'm not really concerned about what other people are doing or what other people think is important, you know, as far as arts aesthetics go. What I'm interested in is providing access to something that not a lot of people really know about right now um, and giving people a choice because that's really what it's about. If you don't have any technical knowledge or if you are lacking a skill-based uh, knowledge base, you don't really have a full set of choices before you, right? Uh, you have default choices. So what I'm interested in is providing a full set of choices. And you know, my students can create anything they want. You know, I think about it as, okay, here's your tool belt, and maybe learning perspective is your hammer, and maybe learning about color theory are your nails, and you can build any house you want, and you don't even have to use a hammer and nails if you don't want to, but you'll never not be able to build the house you want because you didn't have the right tools for the job of what you were intending to achieve. All right, so what has been the response of educational institutions? Do they realize, uh, and if they realize, do they support this emphasis on realism, or do you feel understood by art educators and, and those institutions? Well, what I really love most about working with art teachers is how much art teachers adore and love learning. Um, so as long as you can present information to art teachers in a way that makes the, makes it accessible to them, it gives them the opportunity to learn it, um, I, I don't feel any need to critique whatever it is that they're doing right now. I just want to provide additional options of, of what they can do in the classroom. So, you know, overall, the response has been incredibly positive and, and overwhelmingly, you know, good. Uh, we have teachers from all over the country that travel in the summers during their breaks, you know, their time off to come train with us because they're seeking this knowledge. 
You know, we get letters almost every day from teachers all over the world asking us, can you send an instructor here? Can you send an instructor there? You know, we have a very close uh, working relationship with many of the teachers in the New York City area where our main campus is based. Um, And, you know, we work very closely with a lot of art education associations as well. So within this country, every state has an art education association. And so the Da Vinci Initiative has worked with more than 20 different states, you know, at their conferences providing access to this knowledge and training, and we're frequently invited back and asked to present multiple times and, you know, ask for additional workshops. So the response has been overwhelmingly positive because we're, we're offering something that teachers love, and that's learning. Yeah, I wonder if, if you're onto something, if, if this emphasis on skills-based education is maybe the entry point for a return to a realist aesthetic. I want to ask you, Turning away a little bit from the Da Vinci Institute in particular uh, and that work, but addressing more the this issue within the larger culture. Let's be honest. A lot of us turned away from abstract expressionist art because it got to a point where anyone could throw paint at a wall and hang a price tag on it. No skill required. You, you couldn't suss out whether a thing was good. You had to have somebody tell you it was worth buying, etc. And so now you created a class of, mm-hmm. of interpreters and so on. Do you think even non-realist artists are now finding that they need the drafting skills, the ability to work with the perspective, the things that an atelier training would imply, if for no other reason than to differentiate themselves from sort of the paint splatter revolution? Well, you know, what I find really fascinating is Damien Hirst, who is arguably one of the most well-known contemporary artists uh, of the day, you know, one of the young British artists. He had this big sale, you know, filled off a lot of his medicine cabinets with his spin paintings, which were like that children's toy that spins around and he, you know, throws paint on, right? That he was selling for like twenty to thirty thousand dollars a piece. And after this big auction, he sold off all this stuff. And he went and built a little studio on his property and he's doing what he calls fact paintings, which he's basically painting photographs of butterflies from photographs, realistically, right? And I look at Jeff Koons, who his most recent body of work are master copies of Manet and other artists with like a little glowing blue orb inside of them, right? So what's he really doing from my point of view? He's trying to learn how to paint and he's doing that by doing master copies of paintings that he admires, uh, which is how artists have learned how to paint for millennia, right? Uh, If you read any artist journal, it says copy the masters. So I see these two huge big names, you know, that we like to think of as the you know, the, the poster children, if you will, of non-realist art embedded very heavily in realism and turning to realism and engaging and, and learning as much as they can about it. Hmm. Uh, do you think that we're potentially on the verge of a realist uh, counter-revolution? Yeah, I, I think that we are. It, it's ironic that um, realism has become a countercultural movement in art, so to speak, or, or that skill-based art is the countercultural movement in art, uh, but it excites me to think that that skills matter again. You know, I find it interesting that we have entire conversations in emojis, right? Like we are so picture-based and yet historically, we probably know less about what it is that we're seeing than humanity did a hundred years ago. With access to the internet and more information in every other subject than we've ever had before, visual literacy and, and understanding the images in front of us, we understand less about that today than we did 100 years ago. And I think that as we become a more visual culture, when as we continue to communicate with images, that people are going to find an interest in, in communicating with pictures, not a painting with 10-page essay next to it that tells them what it's about, but actually getting the communication from the image in front of them. 
because that, that's how we're communicating as a world right now. Uh, it is a universal language. Visual literacy is a language. You don't have to be trained, you know, to, to understand new sounds or alphabets in order to communicate one artist to another when you're using a realism language. But I want to push back a little bit and say that for most of us, a visual literacy cannot be had without access to a translation from the literacy that we already have. <laughs> for instance, if I want to learn Spanish, I need to know, uh, I can't just listen to Spanish, I need to know what a Spanish word means in English. Um, and so, you know, it seems like um, that we have completely lost not just a body of traditional aesthetic skills, but also an aesthetic language. If you stand outside a movie theater and you ask, you know, how is the movie? You get the same answer as if you stood outside a steakhouse. It was good. It was good. It's really nice and good. <laughs> you watch that show where people walk through houses and they look at different living rooms and they decide on a house in the end. And all you hear is, this is nice. It's real nice. It's nice and good. It's really nice and good. We, we don't have an aesthetic language. It's the same three adjectives over and over again. So uh, here's what I want to ask you. Do people who get skills-based training skills-based uh, art training early, such as in K through 12, see the world differently? And more importantly, can they communicate about the world differently if they're seeing it differently? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, John Ruskin, uh, an art critic of the turn of the last century, he was such a huge advocate that you could not write if you did not know how to draw. Because how do you observe and describe what you're seeing if you haven't spent time really knowing it by drawing it, right? And what's really exciting to me is sometimes, you know, I'll be working in a classroom, I'll be guest teaching, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be teaching concepts about color, you know, chroma, value, hue. And, you know, sometimes I'll hear a student later on in the week be like, wow, look at that chroma in the carpet, you know, over there. I never noticed that before. You know, sometimes just giving things a name makes you see them. And so understanding color or shape or value or line in a really nuanced way, not just saying here's a line. But like understanding exactly what a line can do through intensive study, it changes how you, you see the world. You know, my sister could read before I could read. I remember this quite clearly. And she's about a year older than I was. And we were on a family vacation and she was reading the signs as we walked by them. And I was like, wow, what a magical thing that my sister can do. She's pulling magic out of the air. She's pulling knowledge out of thin air. Maybe one day I can do that. But I think about being visually literate and what this training is doing is giving you that level of information. It's like being able to read for the first time. You can glean so much more out of the same scene uh, than you could without it. And it's just as important as reading literacy, if not more important than reading literacy. And it makes me sad to think that there are people going through the world that are missing these really magical visual moments because they don't know how to really see, that they haven't been trained to see at the same level that they trained to read. So we often hear that, you know, the, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, that the culture is becoming more visual. And of course, everybody cites social media, but there's also VR, um, gaming, streaming. Uh, but actually, uh, in the pre-industrial world, life was incredibly visual. Churches were painted top to bottom with icons. Baroque architecture in cities and, and pub shingles in little towns conveyed a, a visual message. So I think we've actually forgotten that there once was a figurative art culture that was supremely embedded in daily society and in a way sure. that makes the 80s, for instance, you know, look almost sterile. So that said, <laughs> here's my question. Can visual artists help the public see things differently or has that role now passed from artist actually to technologist or perhaps the distinction is gone? I mean, you know, when a game designer draws a landscape, it, it's figurative, mm -hmm. obviously. 
Mm-hmm. Well, um, what's interesting to me about gaming, you know, the people who are creating, you know, those video games and, and things like that, they have a lot of training and a lot of knowledge, and yet there's still pieces of the knowledge that uh, of atelier training that are not quite there. If you look at gaming systems, uh, often all the edges are really, really hard, but it, it kills the illusion of depth, right? Um, often in video games, they're really dependent on really intensely colored objects uh, in order to create silhouettes when that's not really how the eye sees visual information in the real world. So even in these games where they're trying to get you to really believe you're in these other worlds, there's little pieces of the knowledge of that uh, inherited artistic knowledge base that's still missing in the gaming industry, even though they're trying more than anybody to be realistic. So I, I definitely think technology can only do what we give it, right? So unless we make those programs soften edges or neutralize the colors, we're not going to be able to achieve the same level of illusion, say, that a Rembrandt painting has. If you look at a Rembrandt painting, that face is more sculptural and th- more three-dimensional than any photograph you know, with a digital camera will ever be because it's not just taking the information and copying it the way a machine does, a camera does. It's taking that information, 3D information, which is massive amounts of information, and editing it onto a 2D surface. So when you go from 3D to 2D, you're eliminating an enormous amount of visual information. A camera does that the same way every time. An artist makes different choices than a camera does, which is why a Rembrandt painting looks so dimensional and a photograph of the same person is going to look very flat. So I want to switch in the final segment of our our show, which is largely about um, the market and collectors and so on. It seems like the art market has been polarized or become polarized between um, elite and ultra low price points, if that makes sense. And if that's so, Mm -hmm. um, then that forms a pretty bleak picture for the future of um, the middle class artist, which is where at one point, most artists, you know, back when there was an atelier system thrived. So is that even still feasibly a thing to become the middle class artist? And if so, how can we shore up and foster a new era of middle class artists? Sure. Well, you know, I tend to see everything um, with my background as an educator through an educational lens, right? And what I see is that we have lost the knowledge of collecting and the confidence of collecting in that middle class range. There are many people that have a million dollar house that have, uh, you know, like $5 prints on the walls and not a single original painting. And it's not that they can't afford an original painting. It's that how do I buy an original painting? How do I commission an original painting? These are all skills too, right? And if your parents weren't buying, you know, paintings from artists, you're unlikely to have that skill set. And so I believe that as artists, especially, it's our job to help educate the public on how to purchase artworks, how to collect artworks, um, the value of having a real painting in your home versus a print on your wall, and you know, encouraging and educating that middle segment to to renew that knowledge base because it's not just the skills that maybe got set aside for the last hundred years; it's the skills of collecting, right? Not just the art making, but the collecting. Now, figurative work seems to sell fairly well at relatively low price points, whereas abstract work uh, tends to command some fairly astounding fees. And I wonder if this is because 
we don't really have, uh, referencing the earlier part of our conversation, we don't really have an interpretive matrix for abstract work, whereas a, a figurative artist, a figurative artist is going to have more of a case for their work. You know, an abstract artist, we, we, <laughs> it's hard to do a direct one-to-one -one correlation between the thing that I'm looking at and, and a monetary value, if that's fair. So do you think that's an accurate analysis? And if it is an accurate analysis, then how do artists trained in sort of an atelier model who are uh, implementing a sort of realist aesthetic, how do they make a case for their work so that they can at least work toward the middle of the market for figurative work? Well, I would argue that the reason um, some of those abstract works are selling at such high price points has more to do with their branding, the branding of high-end galleries, the branding of certain collectors, say Charles Saatchi purchasing a work, which will automatically put you in the twenty dollars to $30,000 price point as an artist. Uh, the branding of an, a certain auction house like Sotheby's or Christie's is a brand that they sell your work. Uh, it, you know, it affirms that this piece is worth that. But it's not just abstract work that has gotten that branding. There are a few figurative artists, John Curran comes to mind, that have received some of those brands and, and can sell the work, even though it's figurative or realistic, at that price point. So I think as realist artists, I think we need to step away from this idea that, oh, this kind of work sells good and this kind of work doesn't. I think what we have to do is recognize that the works that are selling at the highest end of the art market it has really little to do with how skilled the work is, as we know, because they, the artists themselves brag about it not being skilled work, but it's about how they brand themselves. And so I think we need to understand as realist artists what that game is and how we can play it or get around it. So, um, Mandy, what are you working on at the Da Vinci Initiative this spring? Okay, so um, we have quite a bit going on right now. We are running after-school programs for teachers. Uh, in fact, I have a class full of teachers here right now in my studio. We are doing summer programs, so we bring our teachers from all over the country uh, to come train with us in the New York City area for the summer. We are working on a number of other projects to provide access to this training. So we provide online classes. If you type in Da Vinci Initiative into YouTube, you can take a free Bark Plate class. Again, the Bark Plate was the first project you would do in the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in the old French Academy. And it teaches you exactly how to go through that. And it's completely free. So we continue to write lesson plans for teachers to implement this training into their classrooms. And, you know, we, we speak at conferences, you know, uh, as well. So, you know, conference seasons in the fall. So I'm putting in all my proposals, you know, to travel the country in the fall and, and kind of spread the word about what this training is and, and how people can access it. Okay, and I understand that you're writing a book about visual literacy. We talked about it briefly earlier, but when do you think that will be coming out? Uh, yes. So uh, like all projects, particularly book projects, it's certainly a big one. And what I'm really excited about uh, this book on visual literacy is that it's a book about how visual literacy matters to every profession. So each chapter is basically an atelier concept and how it matters to certain professions. So for example, there's a book about bridges and engineering, right? And the book makes an argument that the strongest bridge in the world is not necessarily the one made from the strongest materials. It's the one, uh, there was one bridge when Hitler was evacuating Florence that he didn't blow up and it was the Ponte Vecchio. And it was because it was too beautiful to blow up. So how can we truly have a strong bridge if it's not beautiful? If humanity doesn't want your bridge, it's not engineered well. 
if your bridge is not beautiful, it's not going to be strong enough to last the test of time, no matter what materials it's made out of. And so I'm, I continue to write this book chapter by chapter. Um, there's a chapter about surgery, um, and I anticipate to have that out within the next year. Well, you've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Mandy's work as a painter, visit mandytice.com. That's Mandy with a Y, T-H-E-I-S.com. And for her work as an educator, visit davinciinitiative.org. For more information on the Clark Healings Fund, visit clarkhealingsfund.org. To sponsor this program, show your support at clarkhealingsfund.org slash donate. We're able to bring it to you because of gifts from listeners like you. Thank you for listening and thank you, Mandy. It's been really great having you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.